0: All right, good evening, welcome to another star, star-studded episode of SLM. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to stay on track, I'm going to have a little bit of a hard time because uh, there's been a lot going on uh, in the Lord the last... Few days for me, and just some more clarity about what we're what we're about here um, in SLM, and what we're forming, and the direction that we're going, and um, things that I want to share as we progress through our relation relational discussions. We're going to move from marriage into family and child rearing, and then we're going to go from there into um, the way that we affect our culture and once we've set the context for how we're going to affect our culture, then we'll start looking at some of the issues that our culture is questioning and dealing with and addressing those things. Um, I don't... (laughs) As Christians, I'm going to get a little off topic briefly, but as Christians, we aren't relevant by trying to be like the culture in the things that they're doing were to be relevant with providing answers for the questions that they're asking. And Christianity is always relevant because we provide the person that has the answers to every question that's ever been asked in any era throughout history. And so we, we fail when we attempt to be relevant by becoming like them to be accepted by them. We succeed in affecting our culture when we provide them with the answers that they're seeking uh, in the era in which they live, so anyway, there's been a lot going on uh, and uh, i'm going to process it for a while, and then in a few weeks when we get there, we'll share some more stuff on that. but again, um, going back tonight we're going to finish up what I plan to share on marriage, and um, next week we'll we'll get into some family stuff so um I'm going to pray, and we'll get going. Father, thank you for the relationships that you've provided us with. And uh, Lord, we thank you for making us rich and wealthy in relationship. Uh, Father, there's a, a variety of different ways that we have the privilege of interacting with other people. And we thank you for each one of those different facets of relationship that you give us to make our lives fuller and healthier and uh, more abounding with life. We love you. Amen. So, as we go through some of this um, relationship stuff, um, continue, I guess, as we continue through, I want to take on some of the cultural uh, notions of what biblical marriage, family, child raising looks like. Um, Because part of the reason that we struggle in the church to embrace what the scripture says is we've adopted some of the perceptions that culture offers when we look at the biblical definitions of certain relationships, marriage, parenting, um, the rest. And so as we go through, I'm going to attempt to not only talk about this relationship or these relationships, but I'm also going to attempt to address the false notions that our culture currently has when viewing these types of relationships and to try to, um, in some ways, combat those with what the relationship actually is and in other ways acknowledge, yes, this is true and it's just better because God says so. so. But where I want to go tonight... I just want to start out with some basic marriage passages in scripture, and then toward the end, I want to look at how do we deal with struggling marriages. So last week, we talked about mostly how to not have a struggling marriage, and some things, and ways that we can approach marriage to make it prosper. Um, and, And hopefully, all of us that are married or heading toward marriage you will have one of the types of marriage that scripture defines as great and wonderful and blessed but we will probably encounter someone throughout our life that does not and so if it's personal or someone that we know I want to look at some things uh, when dealing with marriages that are struggling and uh, we'll get there so Ephesians 5 um, is a very pertinent scripture when you talk about marriage, and uh, starting in verse 22, I'll read the whole passage, and then I'll uh, give you some thoughts on it. Ephesians 5.22 starts out, "'Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior.'" Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So if you remember two weeks ago, I talked about leadership principles and leadership style. And I did that intentionally before we got into marriage because in marriage, the relationship is a leadership-submissive type of relationship. And our culture loves to describe this as a masterful, lording, power-controlling husband who tells his poor little wife everything that she's going to do and he dominates every decision that she makes and she has no room to become anything other than this quiet little mousy housewife. And our culture really enjoys painting that picture of Christian marriage. And um, particularly when it comes to women. Women are one of the primary targets of culture when being looked at in the context of marriage and the biblical definition of marriage is attacked as limiting women's capability of becoming everything that they should be as though God would create women and then want to limit what they could be and what he created in them the the logic of it is foolhardy I mean, consider it. It would be, be creating something with the intent of it never becoming what you meant it to be. It would be creating something and then telling it, no, you can't function in a way that would make you be everything you're meant to be. I'm going to make you live your entire life suffering, squelched, hiding, mousy housewife. Well, it's foolish. It's foolishness. And that's why two weeks ago when we looked at leadership styles, godly leadership empowers the people that are being led to become something greater than they would have been on their own. When we set out as leaders in life, in marriage, SLM, church, business, whatever it is, the goal of leadership is not to become the most powerful person that lords over everyone else. The goal of leadership is to build people up to become as powerful or more powerful than you are. In, a, in, a, in an organizational context, if you're a leader that has to be in control of everything and make every decision, your organization will never grow. You have to make every decision, you have to micromanage everything that happens. Your organization will never grow. And Jesus did not lead this way. Jesus trusted people who shouldn't have been trusted with what they were given. He believed in them, he empowered them, and he gave them responsibility to do things, and they would talk about it later. And that's why we talked about leadership style a couple weeks ago, because if you go into the examination of marriage and how the scripture defines it, if we view leadership as the type of leadership that controls and micromanages and lords its power over another, we'll skew how marriage is supposed to function. Leaders are meant to use their power to leverage on the behalf of the person that's following them. So in this context, you see what Paul was talking about when he tells them in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He's saying that Christ used his position and his power to leverage us into a position we never could have aspired to on our own. Christ used his relationship to us to turn us into something beautiful, holy, and blameless to be presented on the day of the Lord. So Jesus' leadership position of the church was not to control her and squelch her, but to build her up into something beautiful that she couldn't have become on her own. And he's saying, likewise in marriage, husbands, this isn't about lording over and controlling a wife. This is about equipping and empowering and encouraging and loving your wife into something greater than she could have been had she been without you. This is the model for biblical marriage and husbandry. I'm just uh, wrestling with how far to take this. For me, um, I I view uh, followership and leadership as inseparable, and I don't I don't see any differences in any lines. So, you know, for me, I'm in relationships in my life where I'm the follower, and I'm in relationships in my life where I'm the leader, but. Because in my relationships as a follower, I so make myself as the representative of my leader. Like, I share their DNA. I I, want to own their vision because I buy into it with everything that I am. So when I'm in a situation and I'm the follower and someone's the leader... I'm often the one who's coming to the leader with new ideas as to how to expand that leader's vision. And I'm the follower. And I know that I'm the follower. And there's no question that I'm the follower. This person is in authority over me. Everyone knows it. I know it. They know it. But often as the follower, I'm the one with coming with the new ideas and saying, hey, we should do this. Let's try this. This is a great idea. What do you think about this? Because I'm so committed to them that if they tell me, no, that's not the best way to do this, I trust them as my leader to know something I don't know that can help further the vision and expand the goals that we have in our relationship. Does this make sense? I just don't, I'm trying to, if it doesn't, I'll give more details, but what I'm implying is that in a marriage relationship, this does not mean that a wife never comes up with ideas and thoughts and creativity. Often she'll be the initiator of things because they share the same vision. They share the same goals. They desire the same end. And in this way, there is no tension as to who's really leading and who's really following because we're united in one accord. We're one flesh. We share one vision. We have one mission. So leader or follower doesn't matter 99.9% of the time. And there's you never feel any tension. Because this is the way leadership followership functions, I got... Myself into um, a, a position at work where I'm interacting with my boss, who is my boss. He's a superior, and yet I'm coming up with ideas and brainstorms and thoughts for how are we going to expand our vision, which was his. I just got adopted into it, and so it's really his vision. But now I'm looking for new ways to grow it, and. I've shared hundreds of ideas with him and thoughts with him and let's do this and let's try this and the times where he said no never once did I feel offended or as though, well, just because you're the leader because we share the same vision I know he must know something I don't know and so I just go, cool I'm going to go run with what you told me to do because this is how we're going to expand this because this is my vision now too And this is how marriage is supposed to look. The two become one. The husband has the leadership role. And yet it's such a one accord, a vision, as the two have become one, that almost never do you have these conflicting interactions and power struggles for who's really the leader. Because nobody's really concerned with that. Everyone is concerned with the accomplishment of the vision and the goals of the relationship. Marriage is a trusting and trustworthy relationship where the best interest of both parties is of the highest concern. One of the challenges of marriage is when you get together and you believe that the Lord led you together, often there's a conflict of vision and you go do I have to forsake my vision to adapt to this one or did God knit us together in such a way that he's somehow going to weave together into one these two seemingly different visions these two seemingly different dreams or do one of us need to let go of ours and pursue this new vision for our family one of the things that's come up for us in the last um, week is Mary and I have had very differing thoughts on um, what our life's calling, so to speak, was how it was going to look. And so from the very beginning, we discussed this, and she has always felt like Africa and orphanages, and I want to be, you know, serving here, and I've always had this, no, I You know, for me, it's always been, I'm called to the United States, first and foremost. And probably in my 50s, there will be international things, but for the next 30 years, this is when I was 20, all I'm thinking about is, I'm called to the United States. And I'm called to a group of people in the United States. um, and And I knew this. And over the last week, the Lord has done some things in my, in me, and, and made me aware of some things that have suddenly for the first time put this these two seemingly different visions into one. He's, he's woven them together where we're both realizing, whoa, we we're kind of like, we're going to do this for a little while and then it's probably going to go over here and we'll do this for a little while. But suddenly realizing that God has actually knit the two of them together that the first will actually see the second accomplished. And it, it was just a is an amazing thing when you realize like for years we've just gone on pure faith that God had put us together and that somehow these two visions were both going to be accomplished and then the moment comes where you realize whoa not only are they both going to be accomplished but they've been shared throughout the entire time and he's seen it and he's only now making it known Marriage is an encouraging, empowering, and non-controlling environment. Remember what I told you guys two weeks ago about leadership? One of the most important things that you can do as a leader and as a husband is encourage your wife. Appreciate your wife. Marriage is meant to be an encouraging, safe, empowering, and non-controlling environment. If you're micromanaging every decision that's made... You got a problem, and I don't. Doesn't matter if you're the husband micromanaging or the wife micromanaging; neither one is healthy. Um, controlling and making decisions for people are not leadership attributes. That's the military, not the kingdom. Slaves need a master to tell them everything that they do. Sons understand their father, and take initiative of their own accord. That's the difference between the kingdom and what the world tries to paint in Christian marriage. So, in the kingdom, I don't need my leader to tell me everything that I'm going to do. I own his vision as my own, and I'm taking the initiative to expand it because I share it. And I'm going to inherit it. But slaves need a master to tell them everything they're going to do. So now, flip that over the other way. You're functioning in a slave-master relationship if you're constantly having to tell someone everything you want them to do. Or you expect them to do. Do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, do this. That's not healthy. So, in marriage... It's not supposed to roll like that. It's supposed to be a shared vision that you're both looking out for the best interests of one another and initiating action to see the health of the relationship flourish. One of the greatest gifts we have in marriage is appreciation for the efforts and labor of our spouse. How many of you guys ever felt worn out in marriage? And usually when you feel worn out in marriage, the temptation is to go to your spouse and be like, you never appreciate me. But when you're worn out, it's probably the best time to go to your spouse and say, hey, thank you for all you do for me. Because they're probably feeling the same way you are or worse. So appreciation and encouragement is one of the greatest, one of the greatest gifts you can give your spouse in marriage. That's just a little side note. As I mentioned last week, a spouse's chief, chief, a spouse's chief responsibility. We won't get into that here. <laughs> a spouse's chief responsibility is to help make you holy. Your spouse should be more concerned helping you grow nearer and more like Jesus than with trying to make you happy. We talked about this last week. A marriage will be successful only as long as each party is submissive foremost to the Lord. To attempt to live lovingly and harmoniously will require grace, forgiveness, and love that requires dependence upon God. This means, we'll get into this a little bit later as well, but when you have two people who are not submissive foremost to the Lord, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to have a healthy, fruitful marriage. Um, There's a number of books out there about guys and girls and the five love languages and the respect and love stuff, and it's all good. It's all good. What I tend to stay away from is categorizing entire groups of people a certain way. You know, I, I tend not to try to paint it like all men need this and all women need this. And... That's just the way it is, because that's not, that's not fair. There are guys who aren't that way. There, there are guys who may want love more than respect, and there may be women who want respect more than love. So um, while these, they're good principles, I tend not to apply them across the board. What I would say is each of us are created differently. I think there's more than five love languages. I do. I mean, like, ask Quinn. Quinn. He's got the best Twitter things ever. Pizza is Quinn's love language. And uh, I agree. There are more than five ways to feel loved and express love. But the five that he lists are very, very good. So when it comes to these things that put blankets on how to have fruitful relationships, I just say, you know what? You're each different. You must take the time to get to know one another and learn how to best relate, grow, and enjoy one another. I've shared this stuff with you guys before. I tend to want to avoid, um, you know, anyone even knowing when my birthday is. Um, if we didn't celebrate Christmas, I would be cool with that. I don't, you know, i I don't get excited about those things. I married <laughs> Elf. Um, and, you know, when we got married, it was she wanted a birthday month. And we've now whittled it down to a birthday week. But it's taken seven years. Uh, I had to wear her down. And she's still the elf at Christmas. So I've had to adjust and say, I'm going to make a bigger deal about this stuff than I feel comfortable doing. And, and when we had our elf night downstairs with Ed, I won elf of the night. That's, that's love. That's love. It was the ear, I had elf ears. <laughs> and I could be really animated. My eyebrows are large. It helps me. So the point is, you have to take the time to be able to express to your, your spouse this, this is how I feel cared for. And, and I'm willing, and, the, and as a spouse, I need to be willing to adjust what's easiest for me. It, you know, I might be a great encourager. And I love giving words of affirmation as a symbol of my love. And I love to encourage and tell her. And it may mean nothing to her. And I just do it because it's easy for me. And she might want foot rubs and back rubs every 10 minutes to make her feel (laughs) cared for and loved. And I have to adjust and do things that wouldn't be natural for me to show my spouse that I love her. Those are the types of conversations that we have to have with one another to find out how can I best serve and love you into holiness and into fruitfulness in marriage. So, you know, feel free to read the books and and all that stuff. There's good stuff to be found in there, but don't limit it to those things. I read that thinking Five Love Languages book, and I'm like, I'm all of them. I want all of them. (laughs) What about give them out? Forget that. I just want all of them. I love presents. (laughs) All right. 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy 3, he's actually describing the qualifications for overseers in the church. But therein, he gives some really good attributes for husbands and wives. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. That's a good start. Temperate, self-control, respectable. Let me slow down. Because he means these. That's something that's really important. When we go through and we read it, we just buzz through these things that are being listed in Scripture. He means these things. So he's saying, if you want to function in the church, you have to have a healthy marriage. If you want to lead in the church, you have to have a healthy marriage. And these are some of the things that he describes as being characteristics of a person who would have a healthy marriage. Faithful to his wife. Temperate. Self-controlled. Respectable hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Wow. Faithful to his wife. That's a pretty good starting point, I would say. Temperate. Even-keeled. Steadfast. Not prone to explosive outbursts of anger and rage. Self-controlled. Self-controlled means more than just limiting your behavior. It also means moving yourself into good things. A lazy person is not self controlled. Self controlled is I can get myself out of bed and taking action each day. I can make myself go from one task to the next. I can stay focused. That's self control. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Respectable and hospitable, these are relational things. And I know we don't put a whole lot of uh, value on things, but the older I get, um, the more boring I become. But also, the the older I get, the more I realize how we present ourselves is very, very important. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Um, Culturally, as a man, right now, there's a great deal of uh, celebration placed on uh, man's ability to be violent. And now, I'm going to say something first to frame of context. In no way, shape, or form do I think that a man should be a sissy. In no way, uh, shape, or form do I, am I saying that a man shouldn't be able to protect himself or defend his family or anything like that and be a manly man. When he's talking about being gentle, this does not mean that you're not capable of being forceful. Is it needed? What it means is that you don't respond initially with violence, but with gentleness—not violent, but gentle. Now, you know, if you watch a, a TV show, which none of you guys do, uh, movies, um, you know, um, we see men uh, lauded for their violent outbursts. And when you watch people interact in relationships, typically it's, you know, the girl, she's really dramatic, which we'll get there in a second, and then the guy flips out and he blows up and he throws some stuff around, he storms off, and he's really masculine. And the scripture is just saying it's not masculine to be violent. Um, You know, better a gentleman than a warrior, Proverbs say. And this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a man and shouldn't be able to... uh, be violent should, should circumstances arise, but your first reaction, and he's talking about marriage, should always be, vi- uh, should always be gentleness. <laughs> your first reaction should always be gentleness, not violence. <laughs> right, right after we got married, I took Mary uh, to play hockey for the first time. Maybe this isn't going to be a funny story, but we went and skated, and I'd played hockey, so she wanted to and uh within the first two minutes on the ice, she'd fallen on her knees probably four times, i mean hard and crying, and so our our time skating together lasted about four minutes and then that night we came into uh immersed and she came over to Shar and pulled up her pants and at my bruised knees, Charlie pushed me down the stairs. I didn't really. I just took her to play hockey. (laughs) Stuck her in goal and fired some pucks at her. Okay. Um, Gentle. Gentleness is praised in scripture, particularly in the context of marriage. Not quarrelsome. That means that as a husband, you're not constantly looking to start arguments and fights and be contradictory in everything. Being a contrarian is praised currently. It's not a good thing in marriage. Not a lover of money, this needs to be said. This doesn't mean that you can't have money. It means that you're not mastered by it. It means that money is your tool. You are not money's tool. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. It means you can't just beat your kids into submission, and then they follow you around like puppies. Um, That's not a manner worthy of full respect. Some of you are chuckling. That's okay. Deacons are then told that they need to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Those are pretty straightforward. In the same way, their wives are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and and trustworthy in everything. Here, you know, not malicious talkers is obviously addressing gossip. Um, So he's saying right out, if you are someone who is talking about others without it being a circumstance where you're looking to take action, and that doesn't mean using the prayer request thing, hey, I want to pray for so-and-so because they blah, 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 blah. Um, What I mean is you do at times need to seek counsel about a friend and you have to tell a situation so that you can get advice because you don't know what to do. That's appropriate. Malicious talking is simply for the sake of casting a negative light on another person in the sight of the person you're talking to. That's malicious talking. Temperate, even keeled. Subtitle, not dramatic. (laughs) Temperate and trustworthy in everything. Trustworthy. So when something's shared in confidence, it's not used against another person. Okay. I think that stuff's fairly straightforward. I don't think there's a whole lot of confusion about it. Um... So when marriages are ugly, what do we do? Hopefully, like I said, if you're going toward marriage or you're in marriage, hopefully you're not having to ask this question. And if your spouse is sitting next to you right now, you're really uncomfortable. (laughs) But seriously, um, we hope that by describing what marriage could look like, that we take advantage of that and move toward that, because, like I said last week, it is the greatest relationship that you can you can have. Um, when I when I was still single, I had a, a couple sets of friends that got married before I did, and um, and I wrestled with the feelings of I wanted to kill them because. Uh, you saw how much they enjoyed being together and they were so obnoxiously in love. Um, And so there were the times where I just wanted to like chop both their legs off and beat them with it and see if they still loved each other. And then the other times where you're like, that's so exciting because this is what marriage is supposed to look like. And so when we talk about it, it's for the sake of, of, for anyone who's single, for the sake of saying, this is in front of you should you do marriage by biblical principles. And should you walk with God through marriage, it is the greatest thing that's available, even though you may want to beat your married friends with their own legs at times. Um, They're giving you an example of what could be for you. It's pretty cool. So, should you know someone, that's how we're going to deal with this next part. Should you know someone who's in a marriage that is not good, what do we do? First and foremost, we have to understand that in marriage, each individual is going to give account to God as to how they functioned as a husband or wife. So we are going to be judged according to how we were as a husband or wife. If your spouse is a moron, you don't get permission to be a moron as well. If your spouse is a moron, this is going to be a tough one, Just give me a little grace on this one. If my wife is a moron, that doesn't give me fair grounds to treat her like a moron back. That's what this is about. Each one of us is going to give account. So if if my spouse treats me poorly, I still have to act as a godly husband. Likewise, if I'm a moron to my wife, she still has to treat me in godliness. That's why Paul describes the marriage... Situation, And he also gets into when you're married to an unbeliever, you still need to be a godly spouse. Please don't do it, he says. Don't be yoked to an unbeliever because you're creating a very difficult situation for yourself. However, if you find yourself there or if you come to the Lord after you were married and your spouse does not come to the Lord with you, you still need to act as God would have a spouse act. So, often, let me just say at times, I won't say often, at times, difficult or ugly marriages simply need one person in the relationship to step up and live godly in spite of their spouse's behavior. So, we'll get there in a little bit. Like right now. So when counseling a person that's in a difficult marriage, be there to support them, but encourage them to be godly. So, okay. You're counseling, or you're talking with a friend. It's counseling, You're hanging out with your buddy. And he starts railing on his wife. He's just, you know, she treats me like I'm an idiot, and I only, you know, six hours of Sunday night football, is that too much to ask? Sunday, Monday, Thursday... and he's going off and he's just ranting on his wife now we want to be loving and so we sympathize oh you poor lazy slacker how could she judge you in such a way and because we're really trying just to make our buddy feel accepted well that's totally ineffective you're not helping him and you're not helping their marriage so when someone is talking about their spouse adversely, my recommendation, this is my recommendation as an opinion, is to turn it on them and say, what are you going to do to act godly in this situation? I don't want to listen about your wife. You need to act godly regardless of your wife so what are you going to do to step it up and to be a godly man even though she's mistreating you by not letting you watch Sunday night football for 24 hours a week? I mean you know thankfully it's really only on for about six hours a week if I don't know, Sunday night you know there's only one Sunday night a week guys I don't know forget it um, yeah, yeah Thursday night would be Thursday night football there are the light bulbs going on um, it's not appropriate to sit in a, in a situation where there's an ugly marriage and allow someone to talk about how terrible their spouse is and never address their own behaviors. So find ways to help them become a more godly spouse and encourage them toward their own holiness. So when you're talking with someone who's in a difficult situation in their marriage you are not benefiting anyone by letting them rail on their spouse and just saying, oh, you poor, poor soul. It's okay to sympathize with them because it's difficult, and they may not be doing anything wrong. But the least you can do is encourage them that through this, God is birthing a holiness in you that would not have come about if you didn't go through this. The least you can do is talk about what's happening and can happen in them Because they're in this circumstance. That God's creating for them an opportunity to act godly. If you get the opportunity to speak with their spouse who is mistreating them, please do so. But this is in the context of if you only have one one side of the relationship that you have access to. Quick side step. If it's my parents... Do I have a place talking to them about their marriage? That's a good question. Yes. You do have a place talking to them about their marriage. Talk to them, but I wouldn't recommend being their counselor unless there are absolutely no other options. The older you get, this could become more possible, but it's very awkward um, talking to your folks about their Relations. So I'd recommend, yeah, talk to them. Isn't that dishonoring? Honor, this is a very broad statement, but it needs to be said. Honor is to be viewed in the context of the eternal. So if by honoring someone, you are worsening their eternal condition, that's not true honor. Honor is to be viewed in the context of the eternal. So it is actually honoring someone to go to them and present to them in a respectful and loving way that there are some things in their marriage that you think need some help. It's more honoring to try to help them than to act as though nothing is wrong. You know, statistically, um, these these are factual statistics. Statistically, from a functional standpoint, the children that function the worst emotionally, societally, academically, are children that are in families with couples that are still married and it's a disaster. They function worse than children that are in single-parent households. That's why we should act. And when we see marriages that are unhealthy, do something to try to aid them and see them come into health, even if it's your parents. In a marriage, one party may be more at fault, but both parties need to repent most of the time. So let's, let's put it this way. We, we looked a little bit at how do I deal with this if I only have access to one person. But if you get access to both, the first thing that I recommend is split them up. Don't have them sit there because the worst thing I've watched this happen... The worst thing that can happen in a, a marriage-helping situation is when the finger-pointing starts, and she does this, and he does this, and she does this, but you do this, and, and pretty soon you created a really great fight in your living room, and then you send them home. and They're going to duke it out the whole way home, and then their kids are going to be there when they get home, and who knows? At least I'm not there to deal with it. So the first thing I usually recommend is getting people apart. And then tell them, I'm not going to listen to you talk about how evil your spouse is. I'm going to listen to you talk about what you are going to do differently to see your wife loved better and become more holy. And that doesn't mean you are going to be the pruning shears. So one party may very well be more at fault than the other, and if you have the opportunity, address it with them. It's not okay to see someone destroying their marriage and say nothing about them and blame their spouse with them. They're already doing that. They don't need our help. So both parties will need to repent. I've seen situations where one party had done drastically greater damage, but the other party was, was a part of it, was responsible for some of the things that got on, and they both need to repent for the things that they've done wrong. I'm using the, rep- the repent word very intentionally, because that doesn't mean acknowledging, yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that, you know, whatever. Repent is to grieve wrongdoing and make right and go in another direction. Repentance often comes when we are faced with the effect that our sin has caused. And repentance produces a grief and a desire to see it restored and move in another direction. Repentance is a continual lifestyle but there are periods, particularly early on, where we do an enormous amount of repentance as more of the things that we've done wrong are revealed to us. I had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of repenting conversations where I was having to make phone calls because of the harm that I'd done to another and apologize to them, often in tears. Because repentance brings healing. Acknowledgement and confession to the Lord may bring forgiveness, but repentance brings healing. And in a marriage, we need forgiveness and to forgive all the time, but we need healing if we're ever to be whole. And so it's not enough just to, oh, I did this wrong, and then they forgive, and you go on, because without repentance and healing coming, you will do the same thing three months later, no matter how hard you try not to. Two broken people will have a very difficult time having a healthy marriage. When I say broken people, what I mean is fractured, lives are a mess, emotional basket case, it's good to be there and to walk into healing. But when there are two people that are in this same condition, it's very difficult to have a healthy, functioning marriage because you're so broken and needy, you're expecting things from your spouse that they shouldn't have to provide. And when you have two people doing that, you know, you might as well just pull out the beaters and get it going. It a joke. Don't do that. So often, splitting up the parties to look into their own healing is the, is the best method. Because this is historically what I've seen with marriage counseling. you got two broken people, they get together, and first off, they just start by talking about how horrible the other one is, and you just create a lot of really bad fights. Then, sometimes, good marriage counseling happens where they're able to turn it and try to get a vision of what they're going to be. But if the person doesn't come into healing themselves, they're going to be a mess with how they treat their spouse. So first and foremost, our priority when helping someone in a broken marriage is to see each individual made whole, restored, brought into health. Because when you're healthy, you can be godly regardless of how you're treated. So if you don't have a healthy person in the marriage, they're not able to be godly when their spouse treats them poorly. But when at least one is healthy, then they can take the first step and they're able to be godly in spite of how their spouse is treating them. So target the individuals and seeing them made whole. Find the things that they've done wrong. Encourage them to go and repent and make it right with their spouse, but to bring healing for themselves. Force them to examine their own life. Typically, marriage problems are arising because we're expecting and trying to require our spouse to be something we're not willing to be ourselves. Once the individuals are healthier, then start them meeting together on the premise of apology rather than accusation. So what I mean is, when the two individuals start moving into wholeness and health and you bring them back together, don't let them default to their former setting of accusation and fault-finding of one another. Make them come back together in the context of I'm going to come back into this as someone who's more whole, more secure, and more able to talk about this is what I've done wrong in the relationship. This is where I've fallen short as a spouse, and I want to improve. Humility will heal, and accusation will harm. A couple just real brief points. Separation is at times useful as a tool to move toward restoration if a situation is dangerous. We don't like it, but sometimes it's the safest option. If there's a dangerous situation, um, to separate for a time, to look toward the healing of each individual. But it's to be used as a step toward restoration, not toward divorce. Divorce should never be recommended or sought unless it meets Jesus and Paul's biblical criteria. We don't don't ever give people that way out. We don't. We are about restoration. We are a people that are about wholeness and reconciliation and seeing the broken walls rebuilt and made into something beautiful. We don't give people any other alternative then something beautiful. And much of what we can do for someone is describe to them what it's going to be once wholeness comes back to the relationship. Because they probably can't see it anymore. They've forgotten how great it could have been or could be. And so we need to restore that vision to them uh, as we walk through the process with them. So it's, it's challenging, um, you know, working... In a situation where there's someone in a difficult marriage and maintaining that balance of gentleness, and yet you have to be confrontational because, at least for me, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I was helping someone that was in a rough marriage where they were coming voluntarily looking for things that they could change about themselves. Never had that. I've always had to initiate confrontation and say, wait, when we talk about your marriage, we're not going to talk about what your spouse is wrong. We're going to talk about what you do wrong. So as long as we've got that straightened out, we can keep meeting and hanging out. But I'm not going to talk about what she does. She can talk about that with somebody else. We're going to talk about what you do wrong here. And so it takes gentleness and love, and yet it takes, it ta- you have to be steely with people. doesn't mean you have to be mean but um, in, in it, this is a long-term thing. You know, marriages don't get restored overnight. So healing comes often overnight in these moments where God breaks in. But the restoration of a relationship that has been severely damaged takes time. And when you get into it, know that you're committing to someone for a length of time, but it's worth it. It is worth it to see one family restored, one couple restored. Like I mentioned last week, the the damages and the destruction wrought by divorce and broken marriage, it's ripple effect that affects things that we would never even consider. And so we always look toward restoration, and when we do, we commit to it for the long term. Because it's going to take time to see things become everything that they're meant to be. So next week, we're going to go back to the context of healthy marriage, and then we're going to start to look at the relationships of family and parenting, and as we do that, we're going to look at some of the um, perceived cultural norms and some of the incorrect cultural perceptions about Christian families and children and child raising, and uh, we're going to address some of those things too. So I'm going to pray and we'll take off. Father, thank you again um, that your word is so rich and that there's so much to be found here to lead us into wholeness, godliness, and healthy, rich relationships. Father, we thank you that in in kindness you have made available to us the path to abundant life and full, true joy. So Lord, we're... Our feelings are conflicted with what your word says, I ask that you'd give a grace to press through into your word even though we don't feel it or believe it yet, and that you would give us hindsight through our obedience and not through our disobedience and our failure. Lord, cause us to be successful in obeying you and doing things your way, even when they don't make sense so that we can look back and understand how you were right all along and you led us into your path rather than having to fail and realize we should have listened to you earlier on. So Lord, let your word be a beacon to us to guide us when we're confused and we don't understand that you have spoken on these things and you have made known to us the way to help others into abundance of life. So Father, thank you for marriage. And thank you for the gift that it is to us in this church. Thank you for the fruit that it's producing here, that healthy marriages are are drawing others who want to have healthy marriages themselves. Lord, thank you for the couples that love to be together. Father, thank you for couples here who've been married for years and they enjoy being with each other. Lord, thank you so much for restoring marriage in our midst. We love you. We love you. Amen.